Uh, when I was about 15, I uh, saved up my money for a whole summer and I took myself on holidays to America to visit family who lived in Salt Lake, or lived in a town just south of Salt Lake City. And the first thing I noticed as we were driving to their house was the mountains. They just blew me away. I had never seen anything like it. Uh, where I came from, the biggest mountain was this thing called Kosciuszko and you could ride your bike to the top or push a baby to the top in a pushchair. Uh, here's a picture of Mount Kosciuszko to follow it up. Yeah, that's it. You see the road driving to the, right to the top. Uh, but these mountains in Utah, they were so big. I had never seen anything like them where this, this, the earth just kind of shoots up towards the sky. And as we were driving along, I kept saying to my cousin, can you stop? I want to get a photo of that. And my cousin replied, get a photo of what? I said, get a photo of that. These mountains are huge. I was blown away by their majesty. Uh, But for my cousins, the view, I have a picture here of the view from the front door. The screen's playing up a little bit. Uh, This is the view from their front door. They walk out of the house every morning and this is what they see. They were just so familiar with these mountains, they no longer took their breath away. They barely even noticed that they were there. Uh, Now, can I say that sometimes this is our attitude as we read the early chapters of the Bible in Genesis. Uh, We're beginning a series where we're going to look at the first 11 chapters of the Bible. And sometimes when we come to these parts of the Bible, we lose our awe. Uh, We lose the wonder that we should have as we read through these parts of the Bible. Because for some of us, we've read them so many times before, they're so familiar they are so familiar that we fail to see how extraordinary these chapters of the Bible are. And, they can, uh, and, and we, we fail to appreciate what God says in this part of his word. The other issue that can stop us from appreciating this part of the Bible is fear. It's fear. In Harry Potter, uh, there is he who must not be named. Uh, the evil force of Voldemort who has such power over the wizarding world that they dare not speak his name. Uh, we, haven't even be, uh, we haven't begun to even look at this part of the Bible yet and already quite a number of you have come to me and expressed your concerns about us going into these chapters of Genesis. Uh, you've been part of churches that have actively avoided teaching on this part of the Bible out of fear. Fear that we might not all agree about what it says. Fear that what the Bible teaches here is so far out of step with the community around us that people won't take us seriously anymore. Uh, there's a Flat Earth convention happening in Auckland this weekend. I don't know whether you read about it. The headlines were Flat Earthers fly from around the globe to their convention. I thought that was very funny. Um, a lot of us think that if we read this part of the Bible, uh, if, we, if we proclaim this part of the Bible to the city around us, people will think we're like the Flat Earthers at their convention in Auckland. We won't be taken seriously anymore. Uh, some of us fear that if we open up this part of the Bible, the sermons will be so long dealing with all of the issues, we won't have time for a second cup of coffee after church. Familiarity and fear. I think they're two great barriers to understanding what God has to say in Genesis chapter 1 to 11. I think there's a third barrier as well. And a third barrier is we come to Genesis and we, we ourselves are asking the wrong questions. We're asking the wrong questions. Uh, I'm not going to be naive. This part of the Bible has been the centre of controversy, many, many controversies over the last century or two. Uh, This chapter of the Bible has been the supposed battleground between faith and science. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 has been the heart of that conflict. Uh, But when we look at Genesis chapter 1, we need to be clear about what is the writer actually saying 
What is the writer actually saying? And we need to make sure that as we approach it, that we are asking the right questions. Uh, that we, we approach it with the right questions in mind. Uh, you may have heard of the story of a little eight-year-old boy who came home from school one day and he went up to his dad and said, Dad, where did I come from? And his dad kind of straightens himself out. He's like, okay, it's time for that conversation. And so uh, he takes his son into the, the lounge room and uh, sits him down and they have that father and son chat. You know, mummy and daddy love each other very much and you know how the rest of it goes. And as the dad is explaining it, his son's face is just kind of looking more and more stunned and horrified uh, with the answers that he's been given. And, 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 the, and the dad thinks he's doing a pretty great job at explaining the whole thing. And, 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 and at the end, he says, son, where does this interest come from? What's, what's happened? Why do you want to know where you came from? And the boy said, well, there's this new kid in our class, and he's from Dunedin, and so I was just wondering where I came from. Now, one of the difficulties we have when we look at this opening chapter of the Bible is Genesis chapter 1 actually isn't all that interested in a lot of the questions that we might want to ask about the creation of the world. This passage isn't attempting to answer some of the the questions that we think are important. Questions that we walk around with like, exactly when did this happen? Exactly how did God create these things? What is the process behind creation? Genesis chapter 1 isn't actually interested in answering those particular questions. And it's a great mistake to come to the Bible with with the questions that we think we want answered and not listen to what the text actually has to say. Because the writer of Genesis, he clearly knows what he wants to tell us. And what he wants to tell us, it's not absolutely everything about the creation of the world. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, it's only one of many creation accounts in the Bible. I read, I counted them up last night and there's more than 10 places in the Bible where we're told, told different bits about God creating the world. And each of those accounts, they offer a different perspective, a different, uh, I, some different ideas to add to the picture of God being the creator. Uh, and since we're counting up all these things, uh, I, I counted through the number of words in Genesis chapter 1. 813 words in English. Uh, less in the original Hebrew, and then I looked at the instructions for my kettle, uh, my jug. Uh, it has 2,000 words on how to operate my jug. Uh, it's a kettle. It only does one thing. It boils water. It's not even one of those fancy tea kettles that has like a green tea setting. It's just a normal one with a flick switch. Uh, if there's 2,000 words on how to use my kettle, it's not likely that the writer of Genesis is going to say absolutely everything about the creation of the world in 813 words. But the writer of Genesis does tell us what we need to know about creation. He tells us exactly what God wants us to hear about creation. And so when we let the passage speak for itself, uh, when we set our own questions aside, I think he wants to tell us something about the world that God made and he wants to tell us something about the God that made the world. Something about the world that God made and something about the God that made the world. And we're going to look at those two ideas as we work our way through Genesis chapter 1. So firstly, the world that God made. Now, as we read through Genesis chapter 1 today, uh, one of the things you probably noticed as, as Carol was reading it was for, for us was there's a real structure to what is happening. There's a very, very clear order in all the things that happen there. And you can see it in these words and phrases that are repeated throughout the passage. Phrases like, and God said, and phrases like, it was so, and it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning on each day, and 
each according to their kind. And then, and God called. Uh, now, it's no coincidence that this, uh, those phrases are repeated over and over again. It's not like the writer just had a limited vocabulary to work with. Uh, he wants to make sure that we notice something. He keeps repeating it so that we'll get the point, so that we'll understand. And phrases repeated like, and God said, show that the writer wants to stress that it is God and God alone who created this world. At the time the Bible uh, passage was written, uh, at the time that this part of the Bible was put onto papyrus or whatever it was, uh, there are a number of other creation stories kind of floating around in the other cultures. Uh, They had their own ideas of how the world came into existence. The Babylonians, the Sumerians, the Egyptians, they each had a story about how the world came to be. And each of their stories, it was all about chaos and battles. But here in Genesis, the Bible says that there is only one reason that the world is here. Only one reason, it's because God said so. God spoke and creation came into existence. God spoke and creation came into existence. But the other thing to notice in this chapter is the structure, particularly the first six days of creation. The world that comes into existence, it is not haphazard, it doesn't come in a chaotic way. It's it's done with a very clear structure. Phrases like, and there was evening and there was morning on each of the days. They tell us that there is a structure to what is going on. Each according to its kind tells us that there is a structure to the world that God has made. And this structure, it goes, and order goes beyond that as well. Uh, take a look at the, uh, the second verse of Genesis chapter 1. Verse 2, it says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Formless and empty. And so what God does then is uh, He gives form to the world over the next few days. And then he resolves the the issue of emptiness by filling the world that he has given form. So form and filling is what we're going to see on these days of creation. And there's this really deliberate pattern here. The first three days, God gives form. He shapes things. He separates the light and the dark. He separates the sea and the sky. He separates the land and the sea. He forms the world. In the thing that was formless, God forms this world. And then verse 14 onwards, we start to hear about him filling the empty creation. And the filling corresponds with the form. And so what do you use to fill the light and the darkness? Well, you use sun, moon and stars. What are you going to fill the sea and the sky with? Well, you're going to fill it with fish and birds. In the land, will you fill that with animals and humans? And do you see the structure that's going on here? There is an order to this creation. It didn't happen in a chaotic way. It was not an accident. Creation happened exactly the way that God intended it to be. But there's also one more phrase that comes up in this passage that we've got to notice. It's there in verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 25, and verse 31. And what is that? We're told what God has made is good. The world we see in Genesis chapter 1 is exactly the world that God intended to make. And it's a good world. In fact, you look at God's final assessment in verse 31 after he has made the man and the woman. In verse 31 it says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. It was very good. Uh, Now, last year one of my uh, little projects at home was to make a little gate uh, next to our house to stop our dog from going through and eating the watering system in the front of our yard. Uh, now, at the end of the day, I stood back after I'd made my gate and I thought, that's good. I thought it was so good I took a photo and sent it to Adele uh, just to prove that I kind of could do something. Um, 
for me, that was quite an achievement, making a little gate. Um, but I'm sure if you got a, like a paid contractor in, a proper guy, uh, they'd look at my little gate and they'd giggle. Some of you might have seen it and you already have giggled. And you could point to all the things, the dozens of things that are wrong with it. They would look at my gate and they would have a different assessment to my good. You see, for me, uh, close enough is good enough. Done is better than perfect. The, the, the ways I live my life. Um, but that's not God's sense of good. God's sense of good is that he has created a perfect world, a world that is good in every way, a world that is good in every detail. And this is a world without sin. This is a world where everything is in harmony. This is a world where there is order and balance. This is the world where everything was just the way that God intended it to be. But the passage doesn't just tell us about the world that God made. It tells us about the God who made the world. And first of all, we're told that he's the God who has made everything. There is nothing in creation that he did not make. And God has done it all effortlessly. All he's had to do is to speak and creation springs into existence. That's what we see in the passage, isn't it? God said and it was so. I'm sure those of you who are parents here, you can relate. Uh, In my house, sometimes when I speak, very little seems to happen. The only thing that obeys me in the house is the Google Home and sometimes the dog. Uh, And even they're pretty limited in what they can do. But not here. God speaks and creation comes into existence. And have a look in verse 16. It's almost like a throwaway line there in verse 16. Uh, Verse 16 says, God made the sun, moon and stars. And then right at the end, oh, he made the... Sorry, it says, God made the sun and the moon... And then right at the end, it's like, oh, he, he also made the stars. They reckon, there's one point, or they reckon there's one billion trillion stars in the observable universe. That's one with 21 zeros after it. That's the stars. And God spoke and they sprang into existence, almost like a throwaway line. Oh, by the way, did I mention that he also made the stars? God said, and it was so... Now, I felt like building my little gate was hard work. It took a long time. I had a, a bit of a sore back at the end of the day. But see how effortless this is for God. There's almost a serenity to Genesis chapter 1. There's no chaos. There's no battles taking place. It doesn't appear to be hard work for God. He's, he's, he's not breaking out in a sweat. The day of rest at the end isn't because he's all tuckered out. God simply speaks. And these things appear in their place. Without pain, without struggle, without conflict. There's one more thing to notice about creation and that is uh, the seventh day. Uh, The seventh day is a different sort of day. It doesn't fit in with the pattern of days one to six. Uh, We're going to hear more about the seventh day next week from Paul. Uh, But what I want you to notice this week is on day seven, God doesn't speak. On day seven, there's no evening, there's no morning. It's almost as though this seventh day doesn't end. Everything is finished. Everything is right. Everything is as God intended it to be. And God rests from the work that he has been doing. And he enjoys his creation. And his creation enjoys him. That's the goal of creation. God enjoying his creation and his creation enjoying their God. Now at this point, I'm acutely aware that we've barely scratch the surface of Genesis chapter 1, of what it wants to say. It could be, there's a whole, I was counting up, 
could easily do a dozen sermons on Genesis chapter 1. But I'm pretty sure what the writer wants us to do with this passage, uh, I'm pretty sure of how he wants us to be impacted by this chapter. I think the writer wants us to be amazed by the God who created the world. Uh, When you look through the rest of the Bible, you see how other Bible writers reflect and refer to Genesis chapter 1 and they're amazed by it and that's how we should respond as well. Hear this from Psalm 95. Psalm 95, For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In His hands are the depths of the earth, the mountain peaks belong to Him, the sea is His, for He made it. And His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before our make, the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. We are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. You see, God deserves our praise and our honour and our attention because He is the Creator of this world. In Romans chapter 1, uh, Paul says this, he says that it's obvious that God made the world. Uh, it says this, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Paul is saying that God's fingerprints are all over this world. We can't help but notice them. And he goes further than that. He says it would be somewhat arrogant to think that you can live in this world and ignore the God who created it. Ignore the God who made us. How arrogant would it be to kind of head out there on a day like today or any day really and enjoy all that creation has to offer and pretend that there is no creator. That there is no God who made it all. Uh, One of the things that bugs me, uh, it's on the very rare occasion when I cook a meal for guests that come over and after we've enjoyed the meal, they turn to Adele and they they compliment her on the wonderful food. They praise her for her fabulous cooking, which is like 99.9% of the times true. And now it's rare, but when it happens, it bugs me. Now I made the food for us all to enjoy, but it would be nice to be acknowledged at that point. And it feels like a snub when there's no acknowledgement or it goes to someone else. Now, if I feel that way over like a meal, how do you think God feels as the creator of the world? He looks down on a world where people are enjoying his creation, where people are living in a world that he's created, where they are enjoying it the way that he wants or even enjoying it in ways that he didn't want, but and they fail to acknowledge he even exists. God deserves our honour. He deserves our respect. He deserves our attention. He deserves it because He created the world that we live in. And the New Testament writers, they they do something interesting. They actually take it a step further than that. They show us something in Genesis that we probably wouldn't have been able to see for ourselves. See, it's it's, it's not simply good enough to acknowledge the God who created this world. The Bible says that we need to acknowledge that this world actually belongs... To Jesus. He was there at the creation. Now here is what John tells us. In the beginning was the Word. Now it's pretty clear that John wants us to think about those very first chapters of Genesis and hear the Word that God spoke. He's talking about the, the means by which creation came to be. In the beginning was the Word, says John, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. 
Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And a little later, in John chapter 1, he's going to say, And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, John here is talking about Jesus. Jesus was there when God spoke creation into existence. When God spoke, Jesus was the word through whom he brought creation into being. And Paul says this in Colossians chapter 1. He says in Colossians chapter 1 verse 16, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Did you hear that? The world wasn't just created by Jesus, it was created for Jesus. It wasn't just created by Jesus, it was created for Jesus. So if you're going to live in this world, it's not simply enough to acknowledge the God who made the world. We need to acknowledge that Jesus is the one who rules over this world. That this world belongs to Him. So next time you see that incredible sunset... Well, next time you enjoy that kind of hashtag can't beat Wellington on a good day. Or next time you see that brilliantly coloured flower or bird or butterfly. Next time you kind of stare off into space looking at the stars in the night sky. Or even next time you look at your bank statement. Next time you take the next breath. It all belongs to Jesus. It all belongs to him. Remember whose world this is. This is a good world created by a powerful God and he has entrusted it all to his son, Jesus. And it's arrogant to ignore that reality, to enjoy the the creation without the creator. So will you pray with me that we might acknowledge our creator, that we might... Acknowledge Jesus, the one who rules it all. Father, we want to thank you for your incredible power that brought this world into existence. It's quite simply just, it's mind-blowing for us to think that you could speak and creation would spring into being. Father, it's an incredible world that you have made and We see the magnitude of it and we see the detail of it. We see the complexity and it's an unbelievable universe that we can be a part of. And Father, help us to remember, not only did you speak and creation came into existence, but you have placed it all under your son, Jesus. That he is the one who rules over all things. That all things were created through him and for him. Lord, help us to always remember and live in the reality of that, that Jesus is the Lord of all. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.